would like to welcome everybody here this morning as well. I'd like to say thank you for the opportunity to speak that the elders gave me. I also want to thanks, say thanks to each and every one of you for the way you've made us feel at home over the last several years. It's easy when your son marries in the McCorkle family, I guess, for people to take you in as as good friends. And I know that would happen as I look across the audience. There are a lot of you that I've known for a lot of years. Our paths have crossed either through your parents or by you staying at our house or our kids staying at your house. And that's one of the many blessings that we enjoy as a church, not just here in, in Denton or in Plainview where I live but across the brotherhood. So thanks to each and every one of you, and welcome this morning. I hope that as we talk about some things out of the Bible, that you'll apply them to your lives, that you'll look at yourself. I always say this for my own benefit, not just yours. Look at yourself and think inwardly, not about how much the person next to you needs to hear this, but about how much you need to hear it, because I need to hear it and be reminded of it every time that that I, I look into the Bible. Where do you live? You know, we are all associated with where we're from. This morning, I thought about Plainview. That's where I live. That's where my family lives. At least two of us now. There used to be five of us there. Now they're scattered across the whole state. I have one in Galveston. I have one that lives part-time here in Denton. You live in Denton. I have kids in Houston, in Canyon. There are people here from Oklahoma, There are people here from other places in Texas, all around the Metroplex. And when you think about where do you live or when you meet someone, you say, you know, you typically ask where they're from, even here in the Metroplex. And they'll say, I'm from Louisville or I'm from McKinney. And really what you're trying to find out is where do they spend the majority of their time? What is their life centered around? And you know, if if I'm from West Texas, that I'm probably centered around farming or agriculture There are all sorts of things that become associated with us and where we live. There's an old song, and I realized how old it was when I asked Michael last night if he knew this song, and he looked at me like I was crazy. I thought he knew every song that was in any church songbook that had ever been written, but I guess not. There's a song called, Where Livest Thou? And it makes this point, it makes a connection between us, we know where we live physically, but asking us, where do we live spiritually? And it says, where livest thou? In pleasures of the world or in the places where Satan's darts are hurled? Where livest thou? In malice and in strife, where darkness veils and mars the righteous life? Where livest thou? There's a place to stay, tis in the Christ, the true and living way. Spiritually, we all live somewhere. And I'm not asking you to to say, you know, where do you make your abode or where do you make your bed at night? Where do you put your car in the garage? But for each of us to examine where are our priorities and where do we spend our time in three different ways. How do we devote our efforts as we live from day to day? So as we think about these things, there's a central theme I want you to think about. And that is no matter what we do, excellence is what's required of us. In my mind, as I was younger... I kind of equated excellence with perfection. That if I could do X, Y, and Z, and I could do it right every single time, that's what God wanted from me. And as I got older, I realized there's no way that I can get every single thing, X, Y, and Z, and add the A, B, C, D, E, and all this long string of things together. I couldn't get all those right. Excellence, in my mind, has a different connotation. It means we want to get things right, but we realize that we're never at a place where we can stop. 
we should always be trying to get better. It's, it's our nature. Uh, we all go back to school. We think about school, and we can all relate to that. You'd study real hard. You'd cram for a test. You'd think, well, I know everything I need to know. And then you could go on cruise control for six more weeks if you're in public school or till the midterm exam if you're in college. And then you'd try to cram it all in again. Excellence is a continual effort to try and get better and better. And so as we talk about some things, I want you to keep that in mind, that excellence is what we're all obligated to do. It's to aim for the best and continually improve. It's almost like setting a goal that's up there. Second Timothy 2 and 15, reading this out of the uh, English Standard Version, we're used to the word study to show thyself approved unto God. And that's, that's the way the King James translators translate it. But other translators said, do your best or be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling or rightly dividing the word of truth. Study is part of that, but the idea I want you to take out of it is we all have to be diligent. It's not something that we can just sit back, that we just let life happen to us and whatever happens, happens. Kind of a laissez-faire attitude that you know, I'm just here and things are going to happen. On the other hand, I want you to think about the idea of excellence, that we're all, all obligated to do our best. We're always obligated to look for what's better, what's higher, and to aim for that. As we think about excellence, it's our human nature, and why I always say don't look at your neighboring and see if they really need it, it's our nature... To say, you know, oh, so-and-so down on the end of the bench, I think I've got things a little bit better than them. I come to church more than them. I study the Bible more than them. You know, I've just got it figured out a little bit better than they do, so I'm okay. Well, that's a really dangerous thing to do. We have to be careful comparing our best to other people's best. It's not really a scale that we can put up beside each other. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says it this way, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding or they're not wise. It's not a wise thing for us to compare ourselves to other people. That comparison is always going to be skewed. Sometimes we are going to look way better than someone else. Sometimes we're on the other end of that and someone else is way better than we are. But the great thing is that's really not our standard that we should be looking at at all. Our standard for excellence is the Word. It's the Bible. It's Jesus. And as we strive for excellence, let's remember that. To keep ourselves, our goals based in the Bible. Diligence is another word that we see a lot in the Bible. It's very similar to excellence. Excellence to me is more the goal and what we're trying to reach. Diligence means that we stay... Hooked up, if you want to say it that way, we stay as a worker. We put our best effort into doing what we do. It's one thing to have a lofty goal and to say, oh, here's what I want to be, and to sit around and do nothing about it. Diligence is the effort and the actions required to put that goal into, into place. We're obligated to give our attention and effort to God. We can't call ourselves Christians and do nothing. Hebrews 11, verse 6, He that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Diligent isn't a word that we use in modern English that much. 
someone who searches diligently, someone who is actively engaged, someone who puts their best effort into it, someone who uses their time to further the, the cause of God, the cause of Christ. Those are the kind of people that God's going to reward. People that are active Christians, not people that are passive, sit by and let the world happen to me type people. So excellence and diligence. And as we talk about a few points here in a minute, I want you to keep in mind that relationships are very important. We're obligated to consider other people in everything that we do. John Dunn said, no man is an island. Everything that we do affects somebody else. So while I can't look at my neighbor and compare myself to them and say, you know, I really don't need this, they do. We are obligated to think about our neighbor in the sense that we have to consider them. Their station in life, their mindset, their experiences, and all the decisions that we make. 1 John 4 and 20 says, If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this is the commandment that we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Probably not a single one of us, maybe nobody in the whole world, that we know when we look at them and say, boy, I just hate your guts. You know, we don't, typically, we don't think that way. And surely not anybody sitting here, there's people that we prefer to be around, there's people that irritate us, but just to say I hate somebody, probably most of us don't operate like that. But it's, it's broader than just a single-minded hate for someone we have to love our brother. We have to consider our brother. We have to go beyond just ignoring him and coexisting with him. We have to love our brother. And part of loving our brother is to consider their feelings and their thoughts and everything about them as we try to employ, incorporate these things, excellence, diligence, into our lives. So where do you live? Not where do you physically live. Not where is your house and where is your, your car parked in the garage. But we're going to look at a few things and where are your priorities might be a better way to say it. Where do you spend your time mentally? Where do you put your efforts? And think about excellence as we talk about these things. Think about diligence. Do you have a good goal? Are you working hard at it? And are you considering other people as you try to put these traits into your life? So the central theme, excellence, diligence, and relationships... We're going to talk about mentally. Where do you live? Physically, where do you live? Financially, where is your ambition? And how do you spend your time? Now, you could divide up your life a lot of different ways. This hits a lot of different areas. We're not going to be completely inclusive. But where do you live in each of these areas? Are these priorities? And where are your priorities in these areas? Mentally, there's a lot of college degrees floating around here, and there's a lot of people that have graduate degrees from the School of Hard Knocks. I'm not pushing formal education over practical education. My dad always told me, don't go to college. I went to college a long time. He always told me there's a lot of people there that are educated beyond their intelligence. <laughs> and I met a lot of those. I always tried not to be one of those. So I'm not talking about formal education. There's a lot of smart people that forget 
that the fear or the respect for God has to be the foundation of all of our knowledge. And we can learn a lot of things about designing plumbing or mechanical systems or building plumbing systems or in dentistry or medical school or wherever you find yourself employed or however you make your living. There's a lot of smart people that do a lot of great things. But when things fall apart is when they are not grounded in the fear of God as the center of, of knowledge. And I encourage each of you, as you think about your own life, think about where is your effort? Where are you living mentally? Proverbs 1 and 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. I'm thankful every day that there's good engineers that design good air conditioners when I come to the Metroplex or when I go to Houston especially. You know, there's a lot of knowledge that's not found in the Bible. A lot of good knowledge that makes our life comfortable. But when people forget that the fear of God is the core of everything that we believe and we know and we do, we get ourselves in trouble. So I encourage you, as you think about where you put your mind and how you exercise your mind, make God and the respect for Him the centerpiece of all that. We can learn a lot, and we can do great things based on the things that we know, and we can give that for God's glory, but on the other hand, we can do that for ourselves and our own glory. We have to decide where are we going to put that, and where do we want the... Where do we want the credit to be? I encourage you to make it work for God. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And he's not talking about air conditioners and the electronics and cars and all those things. What he's saying, if we start thinking that we're smarter than God and that we can do things without God and we don't base our lives and everything we do on the knowledge and the fear of God, that's foolishness. For it's written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in man. Don't let any of us get too big for our britches. That's our, that's our tendency, right? We get really smart. We learn a lot. We can do all these things. That maybe we don't know anybody else that can do those things. And we start thinking that we've got it figured out and that we don't need God. And it really doesn't matter what our job is. I've known people that, that were custodians who we think is a lowly job that they get to be thinking that they're really good at it and they start being really condescending to everybody around them because they think they've got it all figured out. I've seen CEOs of companies that get in that same boat. It really doesn't matter where we personally might rank in the scale of all the knowledge in the world. It's in our mindset and what we think the beginning of wisdom is. And if we don't build that around God, we become really susceptible to having vain thoughts. Our, our knowledge is for nothing. And the ultimate thing, we glory in ourselves. We glory in man. And that's not where we can put our stock. We can't put our stock in, in people. We want to put our, our mind, we want to center it on God and use it for godly things. Isaiah 55 and 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, I always took that to mean God's just way smarter than me. And He is, but His ways are higher doesn't necessarily mean that He cares about all the electrical circuits in, in the controls for a fancy car. 
His goals, His thoughts are lofty and noble and way better than anything we could ever have. We need to realize that if we'll put His goals into our life, we can be, be a much better servant. Physically, our health is worth a lot to us. If you've never been sick for an extended period of time, ask someone who has been and you'll realize how important health is. It, it weighs on us in ways that go way beyond the body part that's, that's ailing. You know, the Bible talks about it in 1 Timothy 4 and 7. Refuse profane and old wise fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is, is to come. You know, I always took this as a derision on physical exercise. Other versions talk about that bodily exercise is good for something. We need to be able physically to, to move around if we're going to be a worker for God. But on the scale of the profit that it gives to us, it's very low compared to what godliness is good for. But yet, I find myself, and you probably find yourself, placing the idea of physical things at a higher level than it needs to be. Our health is one thing, but I'll, I'll throw leisure and hobbies into this. You know, it's easy to get really involved and enjoy our hobbies, and it, it really doesn't matter what it is. You know, some people, they're hobby horse, and they like to pick on people that are involved in sports. And people that are involved in sports say, well, people that are in stock shows spend way too much time and money doing that. And y'all probably don't even know what stock shows are, hardly. And there's people that are involved in stock shows that say, you know, you spend way too much time golfing, and you spend way too much money on your guns and going out and hunting, and... You can just keep chasing that all around. And ultimately, as we think about the context of our lesson, excellence, diligence, and relationships, think about where your hobbies and the way that you spend your leisure time, where does that fit into what our goals and how hard we work for Christ and our relationships with our fellow Christians? There's nothing wrong with most of those things in and of themselves. It becomes where's our life centered? Where do we live? When it comes to those things. Solomon found that out in Ecclesiastes 2. He says, whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. He did whatever he wanted to do. Whatever he thought would make him comfortable. Whatever would give him enjoyment. I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. He worked hard and he played hard is how we might say it. He had a lot of money. He enjoyed physical beauty, and he talks about all the gardens that he did and all the engineering marvels that he had built, all the ways that he tried to enjoy his time. And he looked at those, and ultimately he realized those weren't good for anything. Vain is the word that he used all throughout Ecclesiastes. And ultimately, all of the physical things that we do, our hobbies that we enjoy, the way we spend our leisure time, it can be for nothing. If we don't keep in mind, where do we put our priorities? And where do we consider Christ in all of those things? They amount to nothing if God's not in the right place. That's what Solomon said just a few verses later. He looked out on all of that stuff, and it was all vanity. It was worthless. And it wasn't just worthless vexation. When you think I'm vexed, it wore him down. 
It was just something that made him heavy-hearted. And that's what all of our physical activities can do if we don't wrap those around God. Financially, you know, without getting into anybody's business, we all need enough money. And I put enough in quotes because that's a very elusive term. When I was a teenager, I thought if I could get $100 in my pocket, that that was enough money. And I would never need any more money. I remember my grandmother would give me $100 for my birthday or Christmas. And I thought I was rich. And now $100 doesn't fill up the car with gas. And as I got older, $100 didn't go very far. And pretty soon you can find that $1,000 didn't go very far. And the definition of enough gets more and more elusive. Financially, we live somewhere. And it really doesn't involve how much money we have if you just were to take the whole pot of it. It's where our priorities are and where our our goals lie and what we work towards. 1 Timothy 6 and 10 says it this way, and we're all familiar with it. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The King James says is a root of all evil. I like this, all kinds of evil. It's through the craving for it that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. We've all been in a spot where we thought if we just had a few more dollars, life would be great. And ultimately, it's our desire for money that gets us in trouble. It's getting ourselves in a place that we want more or we need more to support the lifestyle that we want. And that doesn't really matter if you live in Plainview or if you live in Houston or if you live in the Metroplex or you live out on a farm in southeast Colorado. That desire for money can really get a hold of us. And it doesn't matter how much we have. We were reading this morning on the way over that Paul Allen, one of the founders of Microsoft, donated $100 million to Ebola research this week. Now, if I had $100 million... We were talking Bill Gates could drop a $100 bill. It's not even worth his time to bend down and pick it up. But guess what? They still want more. I remember Ross Perot was a billionaire several years ago, and he still was a hard-driving businessman that seemed to really have no care for anybody or anything. And he didn't need another dollar. He could buy anything he wanted to. And I've seen people that were very poor that they focused all their efforts on making more money. We have to be careful of what our definition of enough is. We need to make sure that it fits into our goals. One of the biggest struggles I see people get into, and myself included over the years, is we go into debt if we're not careful to get more and more things. It's not just about the money that we have. It's about the things that we want. If you ever listen to Dave Ramsey, he says this about 20 times a show. If you listen to to a two-hour radio show, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Solomon said it many, many years ago. When I owe somebody money, I'm their servant. Now, they may not throw me in jail nowadays, but when someone has a debt over me, it changes the whole way that I have to think about things. It changes the whole way I have to operate. And no longer can I make decisions about what I want or what God wants for me to do. Now I'm beholding to someone else who I owe money to. We have to be careful. We want to be on the other side of that, and we want to be able to use our wealth, the things that we have, for the benefit of other people. 
when we consider excellence, diligence, and relationships, that's where money fits into it, is being able to build those relationships. That's what Timothy said as you read on down. After he said, be careful, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Right below that he says this, for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be proud of yourself because you have a lot of money. Don't think you're better than other people. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't trust that money. If any of you have money in a 401k and you've had it there very long, you've seen the value of your money cut in half in a matter of a few hours sometimes when the stock market does crazy things. As nice as it is to look at those big balances, they can go just like that. It's uncertain. Money's here today and gone tomorrow. It really is. Remember that God richly provides us all these things to enjoy. So it's a blessing from God. But here's what you're to do when you have an abundance. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. You know, that's the opposite of going into debt to buy things that I want because I enjoy them. We need to look out for other people. And when we do that, the last couple of lines, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what truly is life. Money really doesn't buy happiness. Using money the right way can lay up a great foundation for a good life. And that's what God wants for us. Don't put our trust, our happiness in, in physical money, but in the help and the, the wealth that we can provide to other people by being ready to share and, and being ready to uh, do good works with it. Ambition. We all have a certain amount of energy. We all can do certain things when we put our mind to it. And that's what I'm talking about when I say ambition. When I really put my mind to it, and we decide, we've, we've remodeled our couple of different houses, and we'll sit there and we'll think, man, we need to do this for the bathroom, you know, something's leaking and we need to fix it. And we'll kind of stumble around on it for a while until finally I, we get in our minds that I'm going to focus my effort and I'm going to get to it. That's what I'm talking about, ambition. What do we in our minds say, we're going to... Put our mind to it and we're going to get to it and do it. Our ambition is where our heart is. Matthew 6 and 21, that's what I think Jesus was saying when he said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. That's what we'll dwell on and that's where we'll put our effort. Where do you live when it comes to your ambition? What do you put your mind to when you're trying to think about things you're going to accomplish? Is it strictly physical things? Is it temporary things? Or does it wrap up into all these things of the excellence of God's values, diligence in working towards what He wants us to work to, and is to consider other people when we think about what we're going to put our mind to? There are two ways that we mess up when it comes to ambition. I say here, failure to plan is planning to fail. If you've ever been on a football team, you've probably heard that. Or a basketball team. That's a famous coachism all over the world. But we find ourselves in one of two places. We either just spend all our energy and our mindset running off after things that don't matter. Or we can sit here 
like some people do and not ever walk out of our house and not ever do a thing or consider anything about anybody else. And we do nothing. And really where we need to fall is somewhere in the middle of that, that, that wide spectrum. An ambition of nothing is no good. And an ambition of wrong things is no good. We need to focus our ambition on Christ. And if we don't plan to do that, we will fail right off the bat. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained or the people fail. But happy is he who keeps the law. Let's focus our ambition on things that God would have us to focus them on. And as always, consider others ahead of ourselves. Philippians chapter 2 says it this way, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You know, again, it's always our first impulse to think about how's this going to affect me. But it says be careful. Don't, don't do that selfishly. We have to consider other people. And here's how it says to do that. In humility, count others more significant or better than ourselves. You know, sometimes that's hard for me to do. I know myself and I know my motives and I know what I've done to get where I'm at. And so I feel pretty justified in considering myself. Sometimes it's difficult for me to consider someone else who may not have worked as hard as I thought I did. Or someone else who hasn't done the things that I thought they should have done. But we have to be careful and be humble and consider others. And not just look out for our own interest, but also for the interest of other people. Time. You've probably heard this a lot of times as well. There's 168 hours in a week. If you sleep 8 hours a day, that leaves you 112 hours to do something. And it doesn't matter if you're Bill Gates or if you're Brent Richburg or it's any one of you. We all are limited by the same clock, the same sun rising and setting, and we've got 112 hours to do something. What are you doing with your time? Is it all spent in leisure activities? Is it all spent sitting around doing nothing? You know, I can't look at you and and determine what you're doing with your time. But I encourage you to do that. Are you doing things that are productive? Are you doing things that further the goals of Christ? Philippians 4 verse 5 says this, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. And here's the phrase I like, redeeming the time. There's at least, there's probably half as many people older than me than younger than me. When I see the word redeem, I always think about S&H green stamps or gold bond stamps. It's kind of like getting milk coupons or almost like the reward cards you get at the grocery store. Only back in the old days, for every dollar you spent, they gave you a stamp and you licked them and stuck them in a book. And when you gathered up enough books, you could go to a place and you could redeem the booklet of stamps for stuff you wanted, like card tables and slow cookers and all sorts of things. Ultimately, all we have is our time. And we can choose to exchange our time or redeem our time for any number of things. What I would encourage you to do is to redeem your time, that 112 hours that you have, exchange it for something worthwhile. Don't exchange it for nothing. Don't exchange it for bad things, but exchange your time for something good. 
I always like to look at the two extremes because generally we're going to tend one direction or the other. With our time, we can spend it completely self-absorbed and only do what we want all the time, or we can be idle. And I'll lay this out in front of you that either one of those is a bad thing. Being idle is your worst enemy, and it doesn't matter. We think about teenagers. I've been in the school business for about 15 years, raised kids. And when they're young, we think idle time is the worst. You know, the idle time is the devil's workshop, or idle hands is the devil's workshop. We want to keep kids busy doing something productive. But I found as I've gotten older, and I know a lot more older people, that idle time and idle minds can be even more destructive as we get older than they are when we're younger, because our mind goes into strange places when it sits around doing nothing. We need to make sure our time, no matter where we are, doesn't mean we're going to be able to physically do the same things we could when we were a teenager or when we were in our 20s. But we can put our time towards something productive. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 18 says, By much slothfulness the building decays, and through idleness of the hands the house droppeth through. Doing nothing is never good. Things fall apart all around us. I encourage you to look for ways to serve other people. Galatians 6 and verse 10, As we therefore or while we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially they who are of the household of faith. You know, one of the things the church at Denton is kind of centrally located, and a lot of y'all live a long ways out where you may not see other church members between church services unless you make a special effort to do that. But that doesn't alleviate us of our responsibility to do good to other people. We're to do good to other people any time that we can. I like this quote from Thomas Edison. Opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. We want something just to fall out of the sky and be there for us. Ultimately, we're going to have to invest our time into anything that's worthwhile. Another old song that's not in this book. I thought a songbook that had a thousand songs would have every one I, I could possibly know. There's room in the kingdom. Every one of us has a place. And here are the words. There's room in the kingdom of God, my brother, for the small things that you can do. Just a small kindly deed that may cheer another is the work God has planned for you. Just a cup of cold water in His name given may the hope in some heart renew. Don't wait to be told, nor by sorrow driven, to the work God has planned for you. There's room, there's a place, there's work that we all can do. So where do you live in all these areas? Mentally, physically, financially? Where's your ambition? How do you spend your time? Are you using those to promote the goals of excellence, diligence, and relationship with other people? I hope that you are, and I hope you'll consider these things as we conclude our lesson this morning. The kingdom needs every single one of us to do our part. And if we'll focus our talents and our efforts in these areas towards that, the work will be great wherever we go. If there's a way that the church can assist you this morning, if you'd like the prayers of the church, or there's someone here who would like to be baptized, please come while we stand and sing.